0: Alright, welcome to episode 40 of the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. You'll notice no intro music, no fancy jingle. That's because I'm recording on-site, or I should say remotely, in Columbus, Ohio. I had the opportunity this week to go to the Institute for Expository Preaching, hosted by Calvary Bible Church on High Street, and taught by Dr. Steve Larson. And this was a, a gift from one of the members of my congregation, they were gracious enough to pay for my ticket and a hotel room, and they wanted me to be encouraged. Uh, they weren't saying that, um, you know, you need to really improve your preaching. They, they appreciate my time in the Word, and they knew that I would appreciate being challenged to do better and to continue to grow through the Word of God and in my ability to communicate the Word of God. The time that I've had so far, uh, we just completed day two of the conference, the time that I've had so far has been uh, very encouraging, very challenging. It's been humbling. but um, it's also been really good in this sense that as Dr. Larson talked about things that preachers should do, um, I, I was encouraged that I was already doing several of those things. And so that's that's just like a kind of a shot in the arm, you know, like a pat on the back. You're doing the right thing. You're going the right direction. But um, on the other hand, you know, he's talked about some things and then he, he in his own teaching, is, is actually preaching to us in such a way that kind of like leaves your mouth open and you're like, wow, this guy can really preach the Word of God. And man, you know, I, I want to be like that. I want to raise the bar high. I want to have a high standard. Um, I want to be able to exegete well, which is to look at the text, and uh, interpret the text, and then I want to be able to share it in a way that communicates this one truth that we have from God. I mean, this is, this is the only revelation, the only book that God ever wrote the Bible, and it's just so critical for us as preachers to communicate it in a way that is moving and inspiring, um, not in the froofy way that we think about those things, but in the way that makes a person say, yeah, I am committed to Jesus. I am going to follow Him. And if I'm going to follow Him, I'm going to do what the Word of God says. So I could talk a lot about the conference, but that's not what I want to spend the majority of my time talking about. I want to give you guys part two of the episode that I recorded about two weeks ago on the common pitfalls that we often get into in our worship. So uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the first pitfall, which was the problem of having a divided allegiance. And it's so easy to do this, all right? Remember, having a divided allegiance is trying to serve two masters, and you're just constantly juggling, you know, who's, who's in charge, who's on top. Jesus's warning in Matthew 6:24 was the primary text that we looked at. You know, he said, "You can't serve two masters. No one can serve God and wealth, for either he will love the one and be devoted to the other, or he will hate the one and he will spend all of his focus on the other." So that was the first um, pitfall that we fall into when it comes to worship. And I want to point our attention in the church to the second pitfall. The second pitfall is this, falling prey to empty ritualism. Falling prey to empty ritualism. Now let me define what ritualism is, and then I want to read to you a passage from the book of Isaiah and then expound upon this a little bit. Ritualism is an established and prescribed pattern of observance with the purpose of pleasing a deity. Did you get that? Ritualism is an established and prescribed pattern of observance, with the purpose of pleasing a deity. Ritualism often maintains a certain external form, but without the reality of the internal substance. So there is an external form. There is external action. It looks from the outside like you're doing the right things, but there is no internal heart response connected to those external actions. Now listen to what the Lord God said to the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors... We would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Isaiah is not talking to the actual people of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he's comparing then that generation of Israelites to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, who had a hard heart and didn't hear the words of the Lord. So what's the message that Isaiah is trying to bring to these people? Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. I shouldn't say it's Isaiah's message. Isaiah is the messenger, and the Lord God, Yahweh, the creator God, is bringing this message to the Israelites. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. And when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. So, the essence of what God is saying, if you were going to summarize this in a sentence or two, would be this Israel. I see that you are bringing to me all kinds of sacrifices according to the law. And in addition to that, you've even made new moon festivals and you've come up with new feasts, supposedly, to honor me. But the problem is, there is evil in your hearts. Your hearts are far from me, even though you're doing all these deeds for me. God goes on to say, in verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds be- from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. You see, Israel was doing all of these external rituals, Israel was doing all of these external things. All right, that's all they are things. Now, maybe they were prescribed in the law of Moses, maybe not. Whether it was prescribed in the law of Moses or not is not really the point. The point is that they were doing these actions thinking that they were pleasing God because they were merely following the letter of the law. And the reality is the letter of the law was not pleasing to God. Doing the letter of the law was not what pleased God. It was having a right heart attitude and a right heart relationship before God. That is what is pleasing to God. You know how we know this? You look at 1 Samuel chapter 15. And God's rebuke and repudiation of the first man who is the king over Israel, Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 15 records the story of God's commission to Saul to go and kill all of the Amalekites. And God said, go kill every single Amalekite, all of them. Kill all the women, kill all the children, kill all the men, kill the king, kill every animal. Of all the Amalekites, he wanted them totally destroyed off the face of the earth because it was his judgment upon them. So what does Saul do? He goes to battle. God gives him the victory, but he spares the king. He spares the best of the animals. He takes some other things that he wasn't supposed to take. And he's waiting around for Samuel to come. He's waiting around, he's waiting around, he's waiting around, and Samuel doesn't come. And eventually Samuel shows up and he rebukes Saul. And he says this in verse nineteen or verse 18. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul, being backed into a corner, wanting to defend himself, says this, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, and the best of the things devoted to destruction. Why? To sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Not only does Saul make an excuse for why he didn't obey the voice of the Lord, he blame shifts and he places all the blame upon the people. And it says, it's the people's fault, Samuel. The people did this. But don't really go down, don't come down too hard on them, Samuel. Don't come down too hard on them. Because what they really wanted to do was they wanted all of these animals so that they could make a sacrifice to the Lord God. Wouldn't God be pleased with a sacrifice? Isn't that what God wants? Isn't that what's commanded in the law of Moses? We are just trying to follow what God has said. Now Samuel's reply probably made Saul's stomach turn upside down. In verse 22, Samuel says this, Has the Lord, has Yahweh, the great I Am, the one who is the creator over all the universe, the one who created the world, the one who created and made all the animals, the one who is not served by human hands. This is the God we're talking about, Saul. Has the Lord, Yahweh, as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Now that's powerful, and that's quite the rebuke. And Saul was right to be afraid when he heard that rebuke. Saul should have been humbled to the point of falling on his face and confessing his sin and repenting. The text records that he did ask for forgiveness, but it doesn't seem like it was a very genuine repentance. And God, because of Saul's sin, decided to take the kingdom away from him. What was Saul's problem? He valued the external over the internal. And that's how Christians, that's how the church gets into problems with empty ritualism. We in the church create standards and rules and processes by which everything must be done. And we start looking around at people in the church and we say, oh, they don't do this and they don't do this and they don't do that. And all of a sudden, they're not as righteous, they're not as righteous. And there's a judgmental. In a condescending attitude that sweeps across the church. And so people, because they don't want to be judged, and they don't want to have people look at them in a condescending manner, they start doing all kinds of external things, whatever they think will make people um, approve them. You know, in some churches, maybe it's homeschooling. Oh, everybody in this church homeschools. If I don't homeschool, I'm going to be condemned and judged, so maybe I better homeschool. Maybe that's not the right thing for you. Or it could be something like, well, everybody in this church wears, you know, a suit and tie and everything like that, so I better wear a suit and tie, otherwise people are going to judge me. Or everybody in this church shows up to do X activity, and if I don't show up to do X activity, even though my heart's not in it or I'm not really skilled about it, I'm going to be judged, so I'm going to show up to do X activity. All right, they're, they're... There isn't anything wrong with homeschooling or wearing a suit and tie or any particular activity that the church does. There's nothing wrong with any of those activities. What becomes wrong is if you do that activity and your heart is not in it. If you're not convinced by God that what you're doing is the right and correct and truthful thing to do, then there's no point in you doing that. It's easy to see how the Church of Rome devolved into empty ritualism because it became all about a man-made appearance. Like, what can I see? What can you do that proves that your faith is real, genuine? Now, let's not take away from the fact that we are required to obey the Master Jesus Christ. In fact, the book of 1 John is all about the external evidence of salvation. James chapter 2 talks about faith without works being a dead faith, not a genuine faith. So there is something that we must do as a result of our salvation. But when we take things that are commanded in the scriptures or things that are made up by men and we make those... All right. Sorry if there's a little blip there, I got interrupted and wasn't able to get my recording quite back on track. So forgive me for a little blip. Um, let's take a look now at the greater point that I was trying to make, which is there is <clears throat> a genuine external evidence for salvation. But but too often people make the genuine evidences of salvation into empty rituals or, or they add to the genuine evidences of salvation and they turn those additions into empty rituals. I had mentioned Malachi, the Jews in the 4th century before Jesus. Listen to what they did. Malachi chapter one, verse six, a son honors his father and a servant, his master. If I then am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise by name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Verse seven, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Well, will he? No, the, a human king wouldn't accept those maimed or, or injured sacrifices, and neither should God. So the Jews, they were offering the quote-unquote sacrifice. It wasn't even the right sacrifice. They couldn't even be bothered to bring an unblemished lamb for a sacrifice. And so God called them out for it. Obviously, I think the best example of empty ritualism is what the Pharisees eventually did and is what Jesus called them out for repeatedly in the New Testament which is taking the teachings of men and elevating them to the same status or stature that would be reserved only for the Word of God. Now, Mark chapter 7 is a great chapter to talk about this. <clears throat> In Mark chapter 7, um, the Pharisees looked at Jesus' disciples and noticed that they didn't wash their hands the right way, and they ate with unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat, verse 3, unless they wash their hands properly, according to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they wash, and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Ha. Huh. Look what Jesus uh, says to the Pharisees. Because they're calling out Jesus' disciples. So Jesus says to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, you want to know whether you've really stumbled into empty ritualism? Does your church teach the commandments of men as doctrines? Are the commandments and the traditions of your church elevated to such a high level that to violate one of your church's traditions would be considered greater than a violation of Scripture? If so, then you have certainly fallen prey. To empty ritualism. And Jesus says, Look, it's not any of these washings that cleanse a person. None of these things are what make a person clean. In fact, whatever you eat goes into your stomach and is passed out of your body. So eating food doesn't make you clean or dirty. Well, what does he say, though? What does he say? He says this, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But if you say a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his mother or father thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things that you do. You see, Jesus rightly pointed out that their man-made traditions cause them to violate the word of God. And he goes on to say to his disciples, Are you without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? because it does not enter his heart but his stomach he said what what jesus says whatever comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within out of the heart of man come evil thoughts sexual immorality theft murder adultery coveting wickedness deceit sensuality envy slander pride and foolishness all these evil things come from within and they devour devour or defile a person excuse me They defile a person. Are you an empty ritualist? Do you demand that a certain style of music be played before you worship? Do you demand that a certain style of music not be played for you to worship? Do you demand that the order of service happen in a particular manner before you can worship? Do you demand that certain people are only allowed to do certain things within the local church? Do you have standards and expectations that you place upon the members of the local church that are not found in the scriptures? If so, then you are probably elevating their tradition of men to be greater and above that of the Word of God. My friends, that is a grievous sin. That is something that ought to be repented of in a very uh, quick manner. Don't be hard-hearted about it. Repent right away. Now, obviously, um, this is a hard pitfall to look at because it really causes us to examine the motivations behind why we do certain things in our worship service. Why do we raise our hands? Or why don't we raise our hands? Why do we dance? Or why don't we dance? Why do we have an organ? Or why don't we have an organ? If any of your reasons Or answers to those questions is because that's the way we think it should be and that's just the way that's more pleasing to God then you better really examine whether that's a ritualism or a true doctrine from Scripture here's a good one we have a hymnal well we project our words onto the screen oh if you project your words onto a screen not very good not good not good you're, you're casting aside the hymnal. Well, what if what, what, what if I take the same songs that are in the hymnal and I put them on the screen? What difference does that make? I mean, we, we in America, we look at the church just from the eyes of our ethnocentricity. That means we're so in, uh, indoctrinated and encapsulated by Western culture and Western thinking. We can't see... That anything outside of our normative experience, what we would consider to be our American experience, would be acceptable to God. I mean, come on, think about it. There's churches and saints and brothers all over the world who don't even have hymnals and they sing. Are they not worshiping God right because they don't have a book with words in it? I mean, that's just ludicrous to think that. But if we're honest with ourselves, that's... That's the Western mindset towards these matters and towards these issues. These two pitfalls, having a divided allegiance and having an empty ritualism, they are probably the two most common pitfalls that our churches face today. And I would challenge you what is your role? In either cultivating these pitfalls or filling in the hole so that nobody goes in there. What's your role in that? Are you challenging people to get back to the word of God? To prove everything from scripture? And if we can't find it in the scriptures, we allow there to be liberty. And somebody to make a choice of conscience before the Lord. If so, we're fighting the battle against empty ritualism. Are we challenging people to make a choice in how they prioritize their life and their time so that they put the things of Christ first, so that they're a devoted follower of Christ and that Christ comes before mother and father and husband and wife and Christ comes before the almighty dollar? Are we doing that? If so, we're fighting against divided allegiance But if we're not seeking to do those things, we need to ask ourselves, am I in one of these pitfalls? Have I fallen into the pit and do I not want to get out? Am I comfortable down here in this pit? Is life easy for me because I can just make these black and white rules? Is life easy for me because I can kind of have my Christian life over here and I can kind of have my work life over here and I can kind of have my hobby life over there? Come on, man, woman, child, we only have one life to live for the Lord. There's only one opportunity to do it. How will that excuse sound when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Not to gain or lose salvation, but to gain or lose reward based upon the works that you've done for Christ's kingdom. My hope and my prayer is that we would all be motivated to serve God with a pure heart. And that our desire would be to avoid these pitfalls and to keep track of ourselves so that we if we so that if we fall into them, we would recognize it and get out quick. Set up measures of accountability so that you don't get into the pitfall. Listen to people and surround yourself with people who have different perspectives on the non-essentials than you, because it challenges the way that you think about worship in the church. You know, if you're going on vacation, go visit a black church. Make sure their doctrine is good, but go visit a black church and see what those brothers and sisters are like in their expression of worship. It's probably way different than the average white church. Or go visit a Hispanic church or... A Chinese church or some somebody who is a, from a different cultural perspective than you so that you get out of your box. All right, well, that's enough for this week. Um, thanks for your patience and your time. Thanks for listening. I hope that you were challenged by this. And uh, if you have any comments or thoughts, please let me know in the comment section. Uh, may God bless you. And again, may your orthopraxy be as strong as your orthodoxy. To God be the glory. Amen.